So, I have really, really good news for you that are here, that are listening. We just finished chapter 5 talking about fulfillment in Christ. And now we're getting into chapter 6 of Matthew. And the overall theme is the Father. Now, most of us may overlook this. Most of us may neglect this. But because of what Christ has done, and because we have been reconciled to God the Father, we have a relationship with the Creator of heaven and earth. Let that sink in. (laughs) Maybe some of you believe it. Maybe some of you don't. But we, as Christians, as adopted sons and daughters, have an intimate relationship with the Creator of heaven and earth and everything that's in it. That's powerful. Thank you, Cheryl. (laughs) Thank you. So today, there's so much to talk about in capacity to this. And like the sermon title, Your Righteousness or Christ's Righteousness? Like, let's be real here. I think everyone knows Christ's Righteousness. So you're like, come on, Eric. How long is this going to be? We know. We know. We've been there. We've done this. It's Christ's Righteousness. It's our own. But, but again, there's so much more to this. And, and the way that I've presented this is that, again, we need to challenge the heart. We need to challenge the core of who we are. Remember that the heart in the Jewish culture was the epicenter of everything that you are. So when we sing about hearts, it's our mind, it's our body, it's our soul, it's everything that encompasses who we are. And so praise be to God that he changes this within us by giving us the power of the Holy Spirit that we may turn from our old ways and that we may actually find new life in Christ. And so, praise be to God for this. And of course, we know it's Christ's righteousness, but we need to challenge the heart again. So, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for changing our lives. Thank you for allowing us to know you and to love you and to serve you. And Lord, I just pray that you use this time well, that you edify us as your body, your believers, as your church, that we may continue to grow and continue to be sanctified and continue to um, just be a part of your kingdom, however that takes shape and however that looks for each of us individually. But Lord, uh, bless this time to our hearts and our minds to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so I broke this up this week a little bit. You can see it's Matthew chapter 6. It's verses 1 through 6, then verses 16 through 18. And what we're skipping is the Lord's Prayer in the middle. And next week we're going to hit that. We're going to, we're like, we're just going to take it hard to the paint. Like, we need to know how to pray, right? And, and God has, you know, lined this out beautifully for us in, in six verses and about, in essence, six different topics. And so it's very important for us to go through that separately. But you're going to see a lot of symmetry and, and a lot of uh, the same thing in regards to what Christ is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount regarding these three spiritual disciplines, giving or tithing, prayer, and fasting. So, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and 16 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. For when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. So, I just want to give you a little bit more background on this too. Uh, as we turn the corner, we saw, again, Christ being fulfillment in all of chapter 5. It was the, the Beatitudes, the change of heart that we can expect to experience. We see the Christ fulfillment, that we need uh, righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. That ties back into verse 1 here. We see the proper interpretation of the law, seeing that it's much more not necessarily what we tangibly do, but what we think and feel in our hearts and our minds. Uh, and that example that I gave, you know, regarding even anger and things like that, like we deal with sin on a regular basis within our hearts and our minds. Like it's impossible to stop, which lends a lot of truth to the fact that we are indeed slaves to sin. Uh, in a sense, because our hearts are so wayward and so bent on our own, you know, profit and our own egocentric nature, if you will. But here we turn the corner in chapter 6. And so in verses 1 through 18 here, we see kind of the public religious life, in a sense. What we'll get to in a couple of weeks is 19 through 34, and that's kind of your personal interior life, if you will, where, where your mind goes, where your anxiety kind of comes from. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, it's the interpersonal or it's your relational life dealing with other people is how this all breaks down. And so Jesus has separated all of this and, and, and he's giving more instructions to his disciples because remember, there's two types of people there. There's the crowds that are onward looking like, hey, this Jesus guy has something going on. Like, I wonder if he can do something for me. And then there's the disciples who gathered and, and gave up what they had to simply follow Jesus uh, in itself. And so based on those two types of people, he's, he's again challenging everything that they know, in essence, from the Old Testament and where they uh, came from and how the scribes and the Pharisees were indeed teaching and interpreting the law. And so this first section, the, the public religious life, it's crucial for the development of your spiritual life. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people that uh, struggle with this, and I indeed myself had struggled with this for many times, but it is very important that we get together, and it's very important that we get and gather. And it's very important that we do these things publicly because it is here where we gather together as the people of God for worship in itself. It's here where we gather to gain instruction in the scriptures in itself. 
And it's where we come and encourage each other in Christ. Because this life isn't easy. Like, and, and if someone did promise you that it's easy, like, surely you must know that it's not by now at this stage in your life because there's so many challenges, not just with our own egocentric natures, but with the challenges of other people and their influences in our lives too, just the same. And so going to the text here, we see that Jesus is like, beware, okay? Beware of practicing your righteousness. But more so, beware in the sense that Jesus is saying the examples that you've had set before you are not quality examples. Now, while Jesus doesn't specifically say the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, those people, he calls them hypocrites. And so it's rather open, it's rather broad, and some people are led to believe that it's almost demeaning in a sense what, what Jesus is saying about these people, but he's not. He's not being malicious in the slightest, and he does not call them specifically out by name. You know, like if I was to say, hey, you so-and-so, you specific hypocrite, that is a problem because that is slander. But Jesus is just calling out the inward hypocrisy of all believers. So while we're led to believe that this is specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, this applies much more to us as a whole because I know myself in my own personal life, there's many things that I have become hypocritical about in some sense and capacity. And I hope Christ keeps killing those things in me, but it does absolutely happen. But the overarching moral of the story and what Jesus wants you to see here is that he wants to reveal how the Father views us and our works and you know what we, in essence, do for him. And so what we also need to know, too, is this righteousness that Jesus is talking about. It goes back to uh, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says you need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he's giving examples here of their piety and how really, you know, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, they're not doing it to have this intimate relationship with God. They're doing it for personal glory by earning acceptance, if you will, from other people. Like, man, that guy really knows how to pray. I wish I knew how to pray like that, and so on and so forth. And, you know, everyone has to start somewhere, right? So always remember that. Everyone has to start somewhere, and, you know, success doesn't happen overnight. Um, so, assuming we're righteous because we do these things. So beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness, which is what is right before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father that's in heaven. And so we see this inner heart righteousness through the Holy Spirit that leads to external acts of righteousness. Because prayer, because giving, because fasting are not natural inclinations for us as human beings. They're of the spiritual nature. They are more so of we do these things because God has loved us first. And so, again, while we see the inner heart motive and where is our heart motive in all of these things, it's really important for us to challenge it, too. So why do we end up doing what we do? Like, and, and are we looking for a reward, as they're talking about? Because it says there's no reward if you're doing it to please other people, which makes absolute sense to the listeners and the hearers because uh, much like that Leviticus 26 passage, if you go to Deuteronomy 28, there's an entire listing of blessings and curses. Blessings for obedience, 
Curses for disobedience. This is not a new concept. This is not a new theory. This is, not, this is exactly hitting them at home that they understand. And I think somewhere along the line, we, we kind of failed that too in our own sense, that if we're walking down a path of sin and we're away from God, we can really expect you know, bad things to happen in that sense. Whereas if we are walking with the Lord and turn to Him in so many different uh, occasions, really all occasions in our life, then there is that sense of blessing and sanctification. Like, I gave that story last week of the struggle that I had, but, but you know, even though my heart says I don't want to go through this ordeal and that, you know, nothing's going to happen, people aren't going to change, so on and so forth, the thing is, God's going to change me through that situation and that circumstance and by going through all of these. And that's really where all of this is going. And so to challenge ourselves in why do we do what we do when we do it, like we see it in the terms of these external acts of righteousness, right? But at the same time, do we see it in everything that we do? Do we have Christ in front of us in all aspects of our lives? And so this reward that, that we're looking for, I'm going to cover this at the, the end, because what kind of reward are we really expecting? But again, there, there was this system in place, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, that talks specifically about these blessings and curses. And so there, there is, quote, unquote, a reward. But there's also an inherent danger, like, I'm doing this to please God to get a reward, just the same as I'm doing this to earn the acceptance of my fellow brothers and sisters or just onlookers or things like that. Like, praise me right? My own egocentric nature. Praise me. But that's not what we're here for. It's all about love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And so we glorify God with our lives, not necessarily ourselves. Like if we can, you know, under the umbrella of Christ, have any kind of affection that's awesome, but at the same time we need to know who we are firmly so that we can stand on that solid rock that is Christ so that we don't get knocked around when bad things happen in life, because they will happen in life. And so these rewards and what we're talking about is spiritual disciplines. And in this first context, why we do what we do is a spiritual discipline, okay? The word discipline in there uh, means exactly what it is. It takes effort. And the easiest way to translate this, and, and we've done this before and explained it again, a lot of us will go to the gym, right? We will work out physically, and we know that it's a challenge to work out physically. We know that it takes pain, it takes effort, uh, you know, weight, there's opposition, you know, to grow, and it can only be honed, like our strength, through consistent, physical, continual practice. Now, we worry a lot about our physical life, right? But with the spiritual side of us, it is the exact same Thing in the exact same way. It takes effort. <laughs> it takes time. It takes commitment. It takes dedication. All this to grow spiritually. Now, if you remember from sermons in the past, like we are born spiritually dead. We don't understand the things of God or His ways or His nature. Fasting seems awkward. Prayer feels very awkward. Um, giving is not really natural based on culture and society. These are all spiritual things that we know deep down, but it takes time, effort, 
energy commitment to allow these things to grow. And so there's a whole lot of different spiritual disciplines. We only touch on three of them here, but uh, there are many, many, many ways that we can actually, you know, help ourselves in a sense, even though Christ and the Holy Spirit is the one that ultimately helps us, by simply going and being a part of what other brothers and sisters in the Lord are doing or what other people are doing uh, in our lives. And so why do we do what we do? Uh, very simply, and especially in this, this first part, is it one, is it for our own self-glorification? I would hope the answer is no. Very similar to the sermon title, Your Righteousness or Christ's Righteousness. But for many of us, the answer would be yes on certain things in our lives. We do it because we want fame or attention or acceptance or power or notoriety, something to that effect that we do it. Now, here's the other thing, and this is where a lot of us uh, disciples and followers of Jesus fall astray. Is it, is it law that we do it? Is, it? is it commandment that we have to do these things? And so, yes and no is really the only fair answer in, in that regard, because yes, we should want to do these things, but no, we don't have to do these things. Again, the Spirit's at work with us, and it's changing our hearts and minds, and as we continue to grow spiritually, as we continue to, you know, work ourselves out, if you will, by very simply attending, you know, worship service, or attending a Bible study or a community group, or simply meeting someone for coffee and talking about how, you know, Jesus has changed their lives and what He's doing in your life, and and how we can be praying for one another, and how we can lift each other up, all these different capacities for sure. But it's not law that we do these things. And so the ultimate question is, do we do it because it's God-honoring? So I would hope so. But again, I can't answer these questions for you. I can only challenge you in the sense that where does your own individual heart lie with why we do what we do? And not just in the capacity of fasting and prayer and giving. You know, there's, there's so much more that goes on in our own individual lives and in our own walk with the Lord that must be examined in this capacity so that we can even begin to understand why we do some of the things that we do. Because if we really sat down and we really thought about it, I think... If, if, if we were able to like hold our hearts in our hands and we could see kind of what it says about what we're doing and why we do this, then I think many of us would most likely end up being shocked <laughs> at some capacity or another, just very simply because I am doing all these things for the wrong reason. And so maybe I shouldn't be doing these things at all. But here we are, we're talking about relationship with the Father, and so Again, this internal change is going to produce external righteousness. And it's not to earn favor from other people. It is legitimately to have this intimacy with God the Father himself and Christ. And so, point number two. It's verses 2, 5, and 16. And so, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received the reward. And then verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Do you see the symmetry in, in all three of those? Jesus is very, very, very consistent in what he is saying. A, he's saying don't be a hypocrite. Now, a hypocrite in ancient Greek times was an actor, an actor who wore a mask, pretending to be someone that he wasn't. I think many of us could agree that at certain times in our lives, we put on masks and pretend to be something that we're not. You know, and why and who do we do it for is probably what's really most shocking. Because what is the old adage? Like, I go to work all day to make money, to buy cars and houses to impress people that I don't care about. <laughs> like, isn't that really kind of where we're at in some sense? Like, I've heard that, and I'm like, mm, that kind of makes sense. Because I think a lot of us are buying those fancy, nicer things, maybe to make ourselves feel good in some capacity, but at the same time trying to impress others that, in the end, aren't really going to be impressed by your material goods or your material possessions or things of that nature. So the hypocritical nature. And we saw that very clearly in the Pharisee and the tax collector story that Frank read for us this morning in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. The guy goes up, he's like, man, thank you, God, for making me me. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a liar, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief. I'm certainly not like this guy next to me. I'm way better than him. Thank you, God. Like, again, where's the heart motives in that capacity? What is he, you know, thinking? He's thinking solely about himself. His own pride of life has eradicated, you know, the possibility that the brother standing next to him is actually decent and worthy of knowing and worthy of love and that, you know, you see at the end that who's the one that's justifying and the one that's blessed? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I wish we could all just very simply humble ourselves, but I feel that that's part of a working of the Holy Spirit to lead you into different situations and circumstances in your life that will eventually, unfortunately, kind of humble you. Because this thing called pride, our own egocentric nature, is just brutal. It's brutal. We will crush other people on our way to our own self-glory. And that's exactly like who we're doing it for, other people that we're, in essence, crushing or flattening down instead of building each other up in the truth and love that is Christ. We crush these other people to make ourselves feel better. I'm sure you've all heard of bullying. Yeah, it's, it's that same kind of philosophy. It's that same kind of pride that we're looking at here that I feel so, like, bad about myself sometimes that I have to tear down this other person in order to lift myself back up again. And so, again, who, who are we doing what we're doing for? Are, are we trying to gain acceptance from other people that honestly we don't know or don't care about or maybe we think they have some kind of power or are we doing it because it is the right thing to do? It is the righteous thing to do, to have this intimate relationship with God. And so what gain has the worker from his toil? This is one of my favorite verses uh, going back to Ecclesiastes. Um, I just love the way that he lays it out. Vanity of vanities. All, all is vanity. And so really question, again, this praise from others that we're looking for, what, what gain are we really going to get 
from that. And if we get praise from God, what kind of gain are we going to get in that capacity too? And so praise from God, obviously, um, more so in this sense too, the what gain in point three, what kind of reward are we really expecting? It's every other verse. It's verse 3, 4, it's verse 6, and it's verse 17 and 18. And so knowing God as Father is fully revealed in Christ. Okay? We see the person, we see the character of God the Father in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who led that perfect sinless life. But knowing God as Father and being fully revealed in Christ is an essential remedy for hypocrisy. For us having to wear a fake mask and pretend to be something that we're not. Now listen to this, because this is really pretty cool. Father is mentioned ten times in these 18 verses. If you go to the Old Testament and try to find a book of the Bible where God is referred to as Father 18 times, you will not find it. If you go through the entire Old Testament looking for God being you know, exampled as Father, you will not find it. There are not ten examples of God being an intimate Father to us in the Old Testament whatsoever. You always see God as, you know, creator of heaven and earth. You see God as the creator of Israel. You see God as a pillar of smoke and fire and things like that, something to be very fearful of and to be scared of, right? And so I feel like many people are still there today that... that and, and they're not wrong because it is healthy for you to have a good fear of God because God can do anything and he can also do nothing at the exact same time. And he's justified on both accounts because he does not owe us anything. But the fact that he loves us and takes care of us and blesses us is beyond words. It's beyond grace. It's beyond mercy. It's beyond our understanding of love and, and all these other capacities. So there is not a reference to God as Father in the same way as Jesus mentions him here in this chapter in the entire Old Testament. So we see that, and then you read that Leviticus 26, and maybe you read Deuteronomy 28, and then you have blessings, and you have curses, and you're like, holy cow, i got to be scared of this guy. Like, he can do all kinds of craziness. Like, he can open up the earth and swallow you whole. Like, there's so much. But your father is in secret. And I want to go more so, again, continuing to talk about this reconciliation and this amazingness that happens with our Father and secrets. And so think about it in capacity to faith. What does God require of us? He requires repentance. Like, he really wants you to say you're sorry for what you've done. That Leviticus 26 passage, like, if they circumcise their heart and if they repent and if they, you know, uh, admit that they've gone contrary to my ways and if they do all these things, again, humility, very simply, then, you know, the Father in secret, he will bless them. And so faith is a requirement of what God has, belief, okay? Repentance and faith, those are the two things that God wants. I do believe that the Spirit has to touch someone first in order for anyone to be humble in the first place because the pride of life is just too powerful. Like, you can't stop it. It's a wrecking ball that's unstoppable. And so 
What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, verse 1. And at the same time, we also see that uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that Peter's talking about God in the same way. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so now that Jesus has come, we begin to know God in such a way that it changes our chief concerns. It changes why we do things. So it goes back to the fundamental question, why do we do the things that we do? And when you see God for as He is, we grow more concerned with what our Heavenly Father thinks of us than what other people around us think of us. Like, I'm never saying go act like a fool because it doesn't matter what other people think of you. Of course, we have, you know, character and display. Uh, in fact, the ancient Greeks called it ethos, which is kind of ethics in a sense, like how you conduct yourself, how you carry yourself. And then there's pathos and then logos. And so pathos was how you connect with someone spiritually, and then logos is how your logic and your thought system worked. So using those three things, it's clearly apparent that, that what others think of us is important, but at the same time, you will conduct yourself as a son and daughter of the Lord Most High by analyzing what we do and why we do it in light of who God is. And this chapter really, really highlights that. And we see that specifically in these three external acts of righteousness. Like we're going to talk about internal and then we're going to talk about relational aspects too. But these external acts of righteousness that we do together, like we spend so much time worrying about what other people think of us. Like we see that here very clearly when we sing too. Like some people will sing, other people won't. Like I'm just a terrible singer. It doesn't matter what these people think about your singing, right? Like you're making a joyful noise to the Lord. We're here to worship God, okay? Same capacity with prayer, right? Like some people are like, yeah, I don't want people thinking that, you know, I don't know how to pray because I really don't know how to pray, and so I'm just not going to pray. You know, it's the same thing. Like you have two ends of the spectrum, right? Like you're going to have those people that are like, look at me pray. I'm really good at praying. And then you have the people on the other side that are like, I'm not going to pray. I'm scared to pray. Do you know that they're both intertwined in the same problem, which is your own acceptance of, other, uh, of being accepted by other people? You're scared to do something because you don't want people to think you're stupid, or you're going to do something because you want attention from other people. But both sides of the spectrum have the same exact repercussion because we're looking for this acceptance. And so um, it's, it's always fascinating to me just how like similarly all these things line up and even though like when we talk about pride we talk about like what the example is with the pharisees here like the hypocrites they want the attention but you know just as much pride happens in the person that's like poor me poor me poor me because it's all about me 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 and so even though you have two completely different people it's the same exact heart problem same exact heart problem because it's all about you and you're so worried about what other people think of you that you're just not even being you anymore. And so praise be to God that he has changed us to this capacity where, you know, 
Josh, like even my own examples, I think about it this week, like, man, like how far God has, has brought me because Eric was kicking and screaming for so many years, like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I used to never want to like pray at, at church. I used to never want to, you know, pray at the family dinner table. I used to never want to do uh, these, you know, external acts of righteousness because I'm like, man, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm insecure with myself and I don't want people thinking I'm a fool. But now the fact is people know I'm a fool and like I just do it anyway. And so this week we got to go to that awards dinner and there was like, what, 250 people there? And, and I prayed in front of 250 people. Now if you would have told Eric eight years ago that he was going to pray in front of 250 people, he would have crawled under a rock probably. So I want to remind you, and I want to give you grace, that everyone starts somewhere, right? Like, don't be shy. Don't be scared. Don't be worried. Be encouraged in who you are in Christ. And know and understand that, like, we have this amazing relationship with God the Father. He wants us to communicate with Him. He wants us to be his salt and his light to the world. Like, will we let him or will we let our pride, whether that come in the form of, you know, hypocrisy or whether that comes in the form of self-doubt, but are we going to let that pride get in the way or are we going to allow God to work within our lives, to sanctify us, to change us by the power of the Holy Spirit? And so... Based on that, how we grow more concerned with what our Heavenly Father thinks of us than what other people do changes what we do and why we do it. The way we give will be different because we know how much we've been given by God. The way we pray will be different because it's not this, I've got to check these boxes, I've got to make sure this prayer is legit, I've got to make sure that it fits the format of the Lord's Prayer in its entirety, otherwise it's not going to be heard and nobody's going to know or nobody's going to care. But you're just going to want to have a conversation with your Heavenly Father. And sometimes it's over you know, joy, sometimes it's over tears, sometimes it's over rage, but you just have this conversation with the Heavenly Father. And so why we do any spiritual discipline at all will be different because we know that we are becoming more and more like Christ every time we do one of these spiritual disciplines. And again, as much as we work out physically to make ourselves healthy, we need to work out spiritually to make ourselves healthy too. And if there's one thing that's more important than another, I would lean on the spirituality. Very simply because we will pass away in this time. Like, godliness is of training for the life to come. And what does Paul say in, in Timothy? He's like, physical training is of value, you know, now, but godliness is for the life to come and the life now. And so you always have that to consider, too, because of where we're going, and God is eternal, and so things are eternal. And so, again, challenge your heart motives in all of this. See where you have to do something and see how wayward your heart will be when you have to do something versus when you want to do something and how easy and carefree the heart can be when you legitimately want to do something that you know God wants for your life. And so what is the greatest reward? 
Like, we talk about rewards, and we even sing the song about rewards, and, and this, that, and the other. The greatest reward is this relationship with God the Father. The greatest reward is our salvation. Like, if we're looking for material possessions, or more people in our lives, or things of that nature, uh, they're not necessarily bad, depending on what it is, but the greatest reward is indeed this relationship with God. The fact that He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, to atone for that sinful nature so that we can be redeemed, bought back from the slavery, and reconciled with God to be able to have peace with God the Father. Like, that is the greatest reward. And so, reconciliation, adoption, forgiveness, giving us a new heart, um, all these things are tremendous blessings that God has given us, but none surpasses more so than the fact that we are indeed saved, we are indeed his children, we will indeed be with him in eternity, and we indeed are having our lives changed at the present, as well as for the future hope and glory with Christ. And so... Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Uh, Lord, even though we don't understand the spiritual nature of everything that we do, uh, Lord, continue to work in our hearts and our minds that our external acts of righteousness can match what you desire for us to have for you, that we don't continue to uh, seek our own glory, but Lord, that we might seek the glory of you. Later on, you say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. And so how true is that, Lord, that you are the giver of all things? And yet here we are, undeserving, and yet you're merciful and you're graceful to give us these good things. So Lord, work in our hearts and work in our minds uh, this week. Continue to challenge us on all fronts, especially when it comes to heart motives. Allow us opportunities to repent, and Lord, please continue to grow us in the faith. So we just thank you for this blessing and this time. All this I pray in our Lord and Savior Jesus' name. Amen.